0: Several years ago, at some little college in College Station, Texas, I think they call it Texas A&M or something, we have some people here, it's a joke, That there's 50,000 students there, it's a huge school. They might even have a football team, and says the Tennessee guy, I wish I could start this whole thing over. Virginia Stim Owens, teaching an English class of freshmen there, assigned to her students to read the Sermon on the Mount, to read from the Gospels. Tim Keller has shared this story. I collected it many years ago. And as her students read this and commented on what they read there, she was, as a professor, she was at first shocked and then delighted because it turned out, That these students who had grown up in Texas, of all places, didn't actually know anything about the Bible. These words were totally foreign to them. They hadn't interacted with them, and so they were stunned when they saw what they said. And one boy wrote, The things asked in this sermon are absurd. Not looking at a woman lustfully, that's adultery if you do it. That is the most extreme and unhuman statement I have ever heard in my life, says this budding commentator. The things in this sermon are absurd, the most extreme, unhuman statements I've ever heard in my life. And she was refreshed. You know why? Because it meant, hey, maybe... In a time of great biblical illiteracy, people can hear the shock of the, of the Bible. And it's gotten me thinking, and we're going to be doing a little series called Divine Absurdities. Because there are a great many things that if we follow merely the impulses and indigenous instinct of our hearts, that will seem absurd... About how God thinks the universe was made to run. About how Jesus wants this community that he's breathed into existence to exist. And so, using Walt Wangren's expression years ago when I read him talking about forgiveness, he called forgiveness a divine absurdity. It's something that's illogical, it's contrary to reason, it's apparently senseless, it doesn't make a hill of beans sense to us. That we should pay for the sins of another. That we should absorb their awfulnesses. It's absurd. Divinely absurd. And today, we see one of the great absurdities of God. The one who makes him known on his knees, washing the crud off sandaled feet. Will we... As we look at this passage, will we, in response to our stooping Savior, willingly bend for the benefit of those around us? Will we willingly bend for the benefit of those around us in response to our stooping Savior? Listen again. I know it was just read very well by Michael. We're going to do it again for repetition's sake. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to his Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. It's a forecast, an expression, demonstrable and articulable of Jesus' affection, his care, his provision, his work for his people. And when you watch this scene, which is going to be hard for you because you've i heard this passage four or five hundred thousand times. Jesus is doing what many commentators would say like the prophets in the Old Testament. You know, sometimes God would make prophets like Ezekiel do weird stuff. Like, tell you what do, Ezekiel. Let's tie you up for a while. Only 390 days. And let's lie you, lay you, lie you. I don't know. God knows the right way. I don't. On your left side, you lie down on your left side, and I'll put the sins of of Israel on you. And you'll be a living depiction of being bound in captivity and the sins of the people on you. That'll be awesome. And then we'll try the right side for Judah. Or he'll have them do stuff like, take a pot, smash it on the ground and say, that's your face, people of God. God. Not quite that drastic, but those sorts of things, like these little skits, these enactments, these prophetic enactments that say, here's what God's going to do, and it's being graphically depicted right before your eyes. And Jesus does something like that here, a graphic depiction of what God is doing cosmically in a setting known as the Upper Room Discourse, if you're ever on Jeopardy, John 13 through 17, where he's talking to his disciples at the Last Supper. And so, he's showing them his love, and how is he going to do it? The evening meal is being served. The devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that all things had been entrusted to him by the Father. He He had come from God, and he was going back to God. So he got up from his meal... He took off his outer clothing. He wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he began to pour water into a basin. And he began washing and drying his disciples' feet. He comes to Peter. Peter reacts like any sensible person would when they see the order of the universe being turned upside down right before their eyes. No way. You're Not, not only... Uh, and to me, I'd just be weirded out if somebody wanted to touch my feet. But if anything should be happening, Peter should be washing Jesus' feet. Disciples should wash the feet of their teachers. Slaves should wash feet of guests. Lords and teachers don't, They don't do such menial things, such disgusting things, such low things. Are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you don't know what I'm doing now, but later you're going to understand. And Peter, as he's wont to do, makes a pronouncement. You'll never, you're never going to wash my feet. And Jesus says, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. There's more going on here than merely the setting of an example. Jesus will explicitly tell us we have an example to follow. His disciples have an example to follow. But he's telling us something more. He's telling Peter and us as overhearers, this story did get remembered. What was happening did become more clear. And as we watch on, we see that we share, we're called to share only what we have a share in with Christ. Jesus is making it clear to Peter, look, you can resist this, but if you do, you resist all that I am doing in the world. You resist the act of my bending and giving up my life so that cleansing may accrue to you. You have no part in me, part. You have no participation in me. You have no share in my inheritance of the life of the world to come if you do not let me first touch you and clean you. This is going to be the theme that we are people who are called to things from Jesus As we share in things from Jesus. And the first part of that is just the cleanness. Peter understanding this says, well then go ahead and wash everything. My feet and my hands and my head as well. And Jesus said, a person who's had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. If you're going to be able to wash each other's feet, as Jesus tells us, if you're going to be able to hear this new command that he issues to us, that we would love one another as he has loved us, this absurd command that would turn things upside down, you have to have some sense that Jesus has touched you and made you clean. That he's not only taken away all your sins, but that gross, unworthy, contaminated feeling you've got? That you've maybe picked up from the judgments of others or this sense that you're just wholly deficient in some substantial ways? That if anybody knew about them, it would be bad news? That Jesus has known about them and says, I want you to participate with me. You are clean by my touch. Ed Welch says that like a virus, they, when we touch viral hands, we can sometimes get a virus. Like I had a situation at Christmas many years ago. The dear friend who was wondering that day, whose Christmas can I ruin? And he, he paused and a sneeze was coming. It was a pregnant Pause. A laborious sneeze awaited. And as he drew back and cocked the sneeze for aim, he was pondering who may I bless with the contents of this <laughs> Thanks, Corby. And suddenly he let out the sneeze and he turned and pivoted right at the last minute to make sure that there was full contact. I'm hit. I'm hit in the most pronounced way. I think I got the flu three seconds later. (laughs) There was no incubation period. It was that drastic and that pronounced. It might have taken five seconds. But a friend's a friend's forever if the Lord's the Lord of them. (laughs) So Christmas is ruined and I've got a virus donated by the touch of my friend the sneeze of my friend one of the interesting things about the ministry of jesus is that people throughout the gospels people who are not touchable they have something deficient about them they have leprosy so they can't live in the community they have to live on the outside because they're they're unclean they're they're unworthy, they're they're contaminated, they're poisonous, they're dirty. And Jesus does things like touches them and makes them able to enter back into the community. He touches them and makes them well. Welch says, when Jesus touches you, you get what he has. When the holy one touches you, you become holy. When the holy one, the righteous one touches you, you become righteous. When the when the one who cleans you touches you, you become clean. Jesus wants you, as you overhear Peter having this insisted upon him, that it's insisted upon you as well. If you're ever going to share what's been given to you, you have to believe I walk out into the world each day really with nothing to prove because I am anchored in the holiness and the righteousness and the the set apartness and the acceptedness of what Christ has done for me. And then he says, after he does this thing, he washes their feet, puts on his clothes back on. He says, do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, for rightly so, that's what I am. But now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I would think if you're going to try to think about how to become a Christian thinker, how do I think about how to act in the world? You could do. You could cover a lot of ground by adopting this little mantra. You should do as I have done for you. This appears to be a logic that the New Testament adopts over and over again. That you should do as I have done for you. Jesus says, wash feet as I have washed your feet. Forgive as God has forgiven you. Show mercy as God has shown mercy to you. It's a logic that makes its way through all the ethical teachings of the New Testament, and it even, even in the ways that people deal with each other. You've heard before, and you know, and I just intimated, it, that Jesus washing feet is, a, is an upheaval it's, it's an upside-down, cattywampus sort of thing. People in his position shouldn't be on their knees, washing feet. But all of a sudden, you see this manifestation of God in the person of Christ, on his knees, washing feet, not considering equality with God, something to be grasped, but making himself nothing. And then, all of a sudden, you see it starting to filter in, like a good virus, into social relations. So you hear the Apostle Paul telling fathers, yeah, he tells children, obey your fathers. Well, everybody knows that. There's nothing revolutionary about that. Everybody in the ancient world knew that. Obey your fathers or they'll kill you. Yeah? Ancient world. But what's remarkable is fathers don't exasperate your children. (gasps) huh?" You're telling dads they got some kind of responsibility to these little urchins who don't even matter in the ancient world? That's right. Everybody knew in the ancient world, wives submit to your husbands. That's what everybody thought. Wives weren't nothing. Women weren't nothing. What was revolutionary was, hey, husbands, treat your wives with respect as joint heirs, says Peter the grace of life love them according to knowledge that's what's the revolutionary part hey strong people have regard for the weak bear with the failings of the weak do you see how everything gets turned on its head that's why some political uh, some theologians would say democracy itself in the political arena should be in a christian way of thinking about it and no, nobody thinks of it christianly it should be a form of government that is patient Where when the majority wins, they become extraordinarily patient to the minority so that they can move together. They take extra care to think about what does the minority want? What are they concerned about? What are they listening to? What are they worried about? But, of course, that's the exact opposite of how it happens. In our world, if you win by even a margin or fraction, then you say, I hope the other side dies and I get to participate in it. The strong exert their strength, Christian or not. Jesus says, as I have done for you, so you do for one another. If you start to let this be a mantra that you commit to memory, and you start to think about it in these instances in your life where you're, you're going to have a natural reaction, just think about your natural reaction and think, if Jesus, how did he treat me in this? Therefore, how should I treat others? When you're, when you're driving down the mountain and you find yourself livid, these ridiculous people who are admiring the glories of God by going so slow. They've been referred to in the Old Testament, someone told me, as creeping things, tourists. How has Jesus dealt with you when you weren't moving as you should? The apostle says, I'm a chief of sinners. He's been phenomenally patient with me. As I have done for you, so you should do for one another. God has shown me patience. Let me be patient with one another. How has God reacted to me when I have been abysmal in my action toward him? When I've spoken of him crassly? When I've turned my back toward him? When I've cussed him and I've yelled at him and I've blamed him for the horrors in my life. Did he smite me? Did he snuff me out? As I have done for you, so you should do for one another. What do we do for each other when we are wrong then? It's a mantra to put to memory. As I have done for you, so you should do for one another. Jesus wants you to know that you're clean, so you get to share in his work, and his cleaning in the world. And he wants you to know he's done things for you and let that become a mindset for how you think about treating each other. And then there's the actual act of washing feet. Do you understand what I've done for you? I've given you an example. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, you know, lords command things and you listen to them. Teachers teach things and you are instructed, you're formed by them. And here's how I'm forming you. Here's how I'm instructing you. Here's how I'm leading you. I've washed your feet. So you should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example. Is Jesus highly interested in hygiene? Maybe. But I think most people, including you yourselves, realize that they're metaphors. He's giving us a picture of something. A picture of of humility, a picture of servanthood, a picture of letting someone else's benefit be important to us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his excellent book, Life Together, has a chapter called The Ministry of Helpfulness. It's a lovely, undramatic way of thinking about a lot of what life is. The ministry of helpfulness. If you want to wash each other's feet, if we're going to do as Jesus has done for us, then one of the first places that that's going to happen is going to be in all manner of ordinary, unheralded, uncelebrated, unnewsworthy, unpinterest-worthy things. Serving in nurseries and washing dishes, helping out at work, helping a friend move. All these things where you let your schedule, where you let your life be interrupted by the needs and the deficits and the opportunity to benefit another. The chance to make somebody else's life better. George Eliot has noted, that's what makes most human life tolerable even. As people who live in unmarked graves... And they had unremarkable lives. But because of their acts of faithfulness, things are not so bad for you and me. If you start thinking, Lord, who may I benefit today? And if you can attach it some way, as you know that Jesus later in the same chapter says a new command to give you, as I've loved you, so you love one another, by this all men will know that you're my disciples. This is the thing that we're to be known for. If you ask a normal Christian right now, or somebody who wasn't a Christian, what are Christians known for? I think most people would say Christians are known and called to stand up and shout loudly about things. It's like, well, in the Bible, nobody does that, except that, you know, some prophets do that sometimes. But, like, the people are never urged to take a stand to shout loudly for things. I'd never. I can't think of a time. Please tell me if I'm wrong, because I, I have been wrong three times. But Jesus says, I want you to be known by this legacy of beneficial love to each other that serves other people and, and the way you love each other. Being a community where it's just phenomenal the way people are willing to be put out for each other. Just remarkable. So that people start to say, are they on something? Who loves like that? And you know what Jesus is actually giving you? He's actually giving you a motivation for how to go about all the worst parts of your life. Because most of you want exciting things. And I hate to tell you, young people, most of your life won't be exciting things. If you're going to be connected to anybody, your life's going to be filled up with boring things. Things where you have to show up. Where you have to put forth an effort. Where you have to do something you might not want to do. But in as much as you can connect those things to love, then you've got motivation. So for instance, someone says to you, Hey, you want to go on a golfing trip? And you say, No, no, no. I, I like golf, but I love folding laundry. Laundry's my thing. And dishes. And vacuuming. And and yard work. Those are what I love. Who who wants to have fun? I want to do okay, nobody says that. Does anybody like folding laundry? Okay, I don't mean to shame you if you do. But in as much as you can say, Well, people in my house need clothes. And if I wash these dishes, that means someone else doesn't have to wash these dishes, or that means people in my house get to eat. If I show up for my nursery duty, I don't ghost Courtney, then that means nobody else has to be put on the hook and be frantic all of a sudden at the last minute because I bailed on my commitment. At work, if I think, As I go out and say, Lord, how may I love the people that I serve today? Connect all the little pieces of what you're doing to love and you'll suddenly have a great motivation for all the ordinary things that you're to do. So washing feet in a very normal way is just ordinary stuff. And then washing feet can also be something a little more. Washing feet can be This idea of showing weakness to each other. You realize if God calls us to wash each other's feet, that means somebody's going to be washing and somebody's going to be having the washing in the metaphor. We used to have a foot washing service at Rock Creek Fellowship. It was awful. (laughs) I don't know that everybody thought it was awful, but I'm just telling you I thought it was awful. It's really vividly vulnerable. Like, we're Westerners. We don't touch each other's feet. You don't even sit next to each other. All these spaces. And here you are in a small space holding something. It's better to do the washing than to have your feet washed. I'll tell you that much right now. But you know what's interesting? There's a kind of vulnerability, isn't there? There's kind of openness. There's kind of like... But you realize, if you think about all the best relationships in your life, are they forged on the insurmountable strengths and competencies of your friends, or did they, get, did they get bound together because of some deficit, because of some weakness, because of some accessibility that you gained because you knew that the other person wasn't able to do something, or the other person, they were worried like you were. They were afraid like you were. If you're in a small group at this church and you like it, my guess is that that small group gets extra specially good when some brave person says something that they're afraid to say because they're afraid when they say it, everybody's going to run away. They're going to be so embarrassed. But actually, they say the embarrassing thing and everybody else goes, Oh. oh you're just as screwed up as we are, yes, we can be connected. Jean Vanier says in these art communities, I'm sure I'm saying all those words right. It's amazing to me how communities are formed way more around people's weaknesses than their strengths, around their deficits than their competencies. And you think about like the people you love most in your life, or people have done some, like your mama has changed your diaper. You don't, thank you. That's pretty vulnerable. There's a sense of being willing to risk embarrassment. Are we willing to have good done to us? Are we willing to do good to each other and risk being embarrassed in the process? And are we willing to simply reverse roles max dupree in a book called leadership jazz tells a story about going into a the locker room at his tennis club he was the ceo of a big fortune 500 company and he walked in there and he said some teenagers had left the room in shambles like a bunch of chickens they did not clean up after themselves literal chickens if you have them they don't clean up after themselves and he, they had left towels strewn about the place, and I just instinctively started walking around picking up the towels and putting them in the hamper. And my friend who was with me said, what are you doing? And then he said, I wonder, are you, are you picking up towels because you're the CEO, or are you the CEO because you pick up towels? He was using it as a principle of leadership, you see. it's convenient. But it's a good question. Because as somebody who's taken seriously, there isn't really anything that's too good for me to do. And when we're really worried about the dignity of our position, am I being paid enough? Am I being esteemed enough? Am I getting enough credit? Am I getting enough heralding? Then usually we're not going to be able to serve anybody. But if we will recognize that Jesus has touched us and made us clean and Now we can serve other people. We can reverse the order of things. And I want you to notice that Jesus says, as we share what's been shared with us, this cleanness, as I've done for you, so do for each other, the washing and the sharing of weakness. He also gives them this reassurance. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. I think it's rather important to realize that the commands of Jesus, even the hard ones, the scary ones, this is a scary one. They're all given by a good shepherd who wants to give you life and life to the full. You are surrounded, as I am, as I am, with people who are making you promises of the good life. They're telling you the path to blessedness if you will but give up sugar and, and, and replace it with plenteous and copious amounts of kale, your life will be blessed. If you will intermittently fast, your life will be blessed. If you will stop checking your email 47,000 times a day and batch your work, man, your life will be blessed. If you'll exercise for 642 minutes a week, your life will be blessed. If you get 12 hours of sleep a night and meditate for two hours a day, And somehow get some work in. Your life will be blessed. And Jesus says. uh, If you. Will bend. For the benefit of others. You're going to know fullness of life. That's the blessed life. If you start thinking. Where can I help? Who may I bless? That is. The blessed life. And of course. If that was it, then it, it, it'd be a little scary. Joe, Joe has a has a line I like. You've heard him say it probably sometime along the way. He says, it's going to hurt like heaven. You know, Joe says these things. This is wonderful. It's going to hurt like heaven, which is not the expression. He's co-opted the expression, right? Because hell, hell doesn't want me to change. So, becoming a servant... Washing each other's feet, being weak, not pretending. These things are not always immediately pleasant. The blessedness is not always immediately apparent. And hell would love it if you would just stay resentful. Hell would love it if you would be preoccupied with whether you're getting enough credit. Hell would love it if you would just keep following the natural path of your heart. And making sure whenever you hear someone complimented that you level them and tell people why they shouldn't actually be complimented. Hell would love it. If you made sure people were worthy of your love, you only helped people who could help you back. Hell would love it. But heaven says you'll be blessed if you, if you wash each other's feet. If you upend the natural order of things and serve people who can't, give you a business contact that's going to profit you later, who can't invite you back to their party, where you may not get any acclaim for it. (laughs) That was perfectly timed. And I suppose that means Darth Vader is about to walk up. There's one stronger than Vader here. (laughs) And he does guarantee, he does guarantee help. And it's important to realize that, that we sometimes wonder, will my prayers be heard? Will God help me? There are certain things that you can be assured that God will help you in. And Jesus tells his disciples later on in this discourse. Anyone who believes in me will do what I've been doing. In fact, they'll do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. And I will ask the Father, anything you ask for me in my name, I'll do to bring glory to the Father. You may ask me, he says it a second time, for anything in my name and I will do it. I can guarantee you this. If you set your heart, if you orient your life around becoming the kind of person that shares in Jesus' life, that lives out his life through you, and asks him to increase his love for others in you, he'll do it. This is a prayer he's guaranteed to answer, as Paul would say, may your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else. This is a prayer that Jesus wants to be prayed and answered. He will help you become more loving. And all of us have a long way to go. But all of you, I know a lot of you, you are, a lot of you are underway already. There's so much love that comes out of you. Jesus is at work in so many of you. So this isn't a chastisement. It's a shot in the arm to say, you keep at it. I close with this little story I saw. Letter, you might have saw it on the Twitter box or something. A dude who wrote a book that I doubt I'll be reading called "A Parent's Guide to Surviving the Zombie Apocalypse. It sounds like the sort of thing I would read, but it would be lower on my list than other things. But the author of this book wrote to this guy named Chris, and he says, Chris, you're probably confused right now. You received a book you didn't order on a topic you don't care about by an author you don't recognize. Let me explain. Many years ago, I gave a speech at my high school. My high school graduation, and you were there uh, to see me, but not really me. You were there to see your daughter, who was in my class. But you politely listened to me anyways. You listened to me talk, and you, instead of getting up and going to the bathroom or faking a heart attack or something like that. Later, you asked me for a signed copy of my speech. And when I asked you why, you said you thought I would be something someday. You might not remember making that request. In fact, I'm sure you don't. And if I ask you where that signed copy of my speech is today, I'm sure you would give me the same answer I give all my kids when they ask me what happened to their old artwork that used to be on the fridge. But what matters is that for a brief moment a long time ago, you believed in me. And you were the first person to ever ask for my autograph. And I silently vowed then and there that when I wrote a book, I would give you the first signed copy. It took a while, a very long while. Actually, uh, let's not dwell on how long it took. This is supposed to be an uplifting letter, not a depressing one. But 14 years later and two career failed careers later, I finally found a publisher who believed in me as much as you did. And this is the sign book I'd love to tell you. This is the sign book. I'd love to tell you I became a success, like you predicted. But the truth is, this may be as far as I get. But at least I got far enough. To fulfill a silent promise that you didn't even know about, and to me that means everything in the world. Thanks for believing in me before anyone else did. Sorry, it didn't earn you a better book. Sincerely, James Breakwell. It's an amazing thing to think that a somebody else's dad would talk to a high school boy and make such a fuss over him and say, "Can I sign? Can you sign that speech and give me a copy of it?" That he would esteem him. It's a, it's a perversion of the order of things. Well, we don't do stuff like that. And this boy was emboldened by it. This man bent down to bless. He stooped, as C.S. was said, to conquer. And he said, you matter. You're going places. You're doing things. And you've got what it takes. And the boy believed it. And your Savior has said the same thing and plans to do good things for you as he cleans you, as he lets you participate in his life, as he calls you out to wash each other's feet. He'll empower you and he will bless you.